Well, there are certain classics uh, that one is ashamed to acknowledge they have not actually read in full yet. For me, one of those is The Lord of the Rings. I tried one several years ago, but halfway through somehow I got bogged down, and uh, I don't know what happened. It just made its way off my light stand. Yeah, you can testify. Well, I have good news. I'm back on the saddle, and I'm recommitted to making it all the way to Mordor. Hold me accountable for that. There was one moment this week that I found particularly powerful. If you're familiar with the story, you might recall the scene where Frodo and three of his hobbit friends are at Crick Hollow, a place they stop at on their way out of the Shire, so it's near the edge of the Shire, and the Black Riders have already started to track Frodo. And now he stands poised to leave his home and to start his journey in earnest. But the question remains, who is going to go with him? Because Gandalf said, only take someone you can trust. But he just found out that the three friends who were with him knew about the ring, but didn't tell him. And so can he trust them? And Frodo says, but it does not seem that I can trust anyone, said Frodo. Sam, of course, looked at him unhappily. Well, it all depends on what you want, put in Mary. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin, to the bitter end, and you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you can keep it yourself, but you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word. We are your friends, Frodo. We are horribly afraid, but we are coming with you, or we'll follow you like hounds. And even a tough guy must admit that in this passage, Tolkien touches on the nerve endings of our soul. Through loyal Mary and his noble promise of untrustworthiness. No, Frodo cannot trust them to leave him alone because they are bound together. They are friends. And we're moved by that passage for this reason. Because every one of us longs to be caught up in a fellowship like that. We all want to be connected to others with bonds of loyalty, bonds of genuine love that are so strong that they will weather any storm, and they will climb any mountain, and they will comfort every pain. And as Christians, Tolkien's insight lands far deeper on us because we understand that this is precisely what Jesus Christ accomplished for his church through his gospel. That's what he came to do. Christ came to restore what was lost at the fall, namely fellowship. He restores it vertically first between God and us. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. One thinks of when the Lord Jesus looks at the twelve and says to them, no longer do I call you servants. I call you friends now. Which then flows out horizontally, creating fellowship with us and other Christians. So it starts vertically, goes horizontally. Ephesians 2.14 says, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Or 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. This is the glory of the church. Our worshiping together at Pilgrim Hill, our shared life together lived to the glory of God, is a living picture of the power of Jesus Christ in Goodlessville, Tennessee, to create a people where there was once not a people. And today, as we turn the corner of chapter 1 into chapter 2 of Philippians, we find ourselves in the middle of Paul making a prolonged, impassioned appeal for the Philippians to catch this glorious vision for the church. He wants the Philippians to take hold of this with both hands, to be a deeply unified people as common citizens in the kingdom of God, to be a deeply interconnected people like soldiers of a heavenly battalion. Those are the two metaphors he used in the text last week. And to refresh our memories, here is some of the, the oneness language that Paul employed last week in verse 27. He says, I want to hear, whether I come or not, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Notice this picture of gospel camaraderie here. We're not to be back to back and disconnected from one another, oblivious to each other. We aren't to be face to face in hostility, striving against one another. Paul says we're to be side by side, striving alongside one another, with our eyes on a common goal, the faith of the gospel, looking to fly high the banner of Jesus Christ in our corner of the kingdom, together as one people on purpose. And today, we're continuing on now in Paul's appeal. And I'll now read the text. We'll be in this for the next two weeks. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So turn there, if you would, and, and read along with me now. Philippians 2, chapters 1 through 4. The way I remember those four epistles, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So I use that all the time. Still, I really do. Philippians 2. Hear the word of the Lord now. So, so that's the same as saying, therefore, in light of everything I just said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. So here Paul is double-downing, reiterating, reinforcing his desire for their unity. He longs for their oneness. And here's what we find in the text. In verses 3 and 4, he's going to give them a practical exhortation for cultivating Christian unity within the church. This is how you maintain a oneness. But before he gets there, he makes a small yet very significant detour in his stream of thought. Remember, he's been on the theme of unity and he's continuing on today, but right in the middle of that thought, 
in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2, where we'll be landing today, Paul pauses his stream of thought to set their eyes on something higher than their interpersonal unity. Now the question is, why? Why does he do that? What's with this detour here? Well, here's what I believe is going on after staring at this text for a week. He makes this detour because true unity in the church happens ultimately as our hearts are being transformed, more so than simply through our actions being reformed. True unity in the church happens when our hearts are transformed by the gospel, not just when our actions are reformed through commands, which are necessary, but they're not the power of unity. So Paul's been exhorting them on the ground to strive together, but he pauses now to speak to their hearts before he continues speaking to their hands. And something we see in the scriptures from top to bottom is that God is not just looking for our compliance, i.e. be nice to one another, He is looking to transform our hearts by his love that then flow out with godliness. God was serious when he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. So Paul takes this detour to speak to their heart, to remind them of the richness of their vertical fellowship. If you establish the vertical, the horizontal will flow. If he can capture the Philippians' hearts, their hands will follow. And this is the way we'll approach it today. Today we'll look at two ways Paul appeals to their hearts. And then next week we'll continue on looking at how he instructs their hands. Two ways he appeals to their hearts today. The first heart appeal is this. He puts before them God's triune kindness towards them. Paul puts before them God's triune kindness towards them that is theirs through the gospel of Christ. So we see this in verse 1 of chapter 2. I'll read it again. He says, So, in light of everything I just said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, the phrasing of this sentence could come off a bit strange, as if he's saying, well, if you can find any of these things, maybe they're helpful because they're hard to find. But obviously, that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying at all. We can understand the texture of his words better if our hearts stay in beat with the text as a whole. So Paul just got done talking about their, their suffering for Christ and their striving against opponents. So that's what he just got done talking about. Maintain a unity while you strive against opponents. So it's not hard to imagine that some were facing real discouragement. And so here, Paul is speaking very tenderly. He's speaking very pastorally to them, not so much as a general giving orders, but as a pastor shepherding their hearts to look at the manifold kindness of God towards them, knowing that some are surely battle-weary, just like we all get, right? 
So he gently puts before them low-hanging fruit of God's kindness to take hold of and to savor for a moment. Typically, when we are discouraged or spiritually weary, we don't need a new insight. Rather, we need to go back to the first principles of the gospel, to the elementary truths that are simple enough to be held by the mind of a young child and yet are as deep and profound as the Pacific. And so this is what Paul gives us. God's triune kindness. First, he lifts their eyes to the encouragement of Christ. He says understatedly, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and of course there is an endless well of encouragement to draw from, from any thought or force that threatens to discourage us, there is so much encouragement in Christ. Our Lord Jesus is not a distant Savior. He's not a distant Savior. Rather, we are united to Christ. We are fused to the very person of Jesus Christ. He is ours, and we are his. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. So his redemptive purposes for us cannot and will not fail. As Paul has already talked about in chapter 1, I am sure that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. That's encouragement in Christ. I love how Jesus says it himself in Luke 12, 32. He says, Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Encouragement in Christ. Or Hebrews 2, 11 gives us another layer of encouragement in Christ. When it says, and this is a beautiful sentence, he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Rather, Jesus loves those whom he saves. Christ delights in the redeemed, and he stands in solidarity with us. Perhaps you feel discouraged by an ongoing struggle with sin that seems to plague you and frustrate you. Well, just a few verses later in Hebrews 2.17, it says... For because Christ himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted Christian, whatever your temptation is, do not let the enemy keep you in the bear trap of self-pity or discouragement because Christ suffered when he was tempted. He didn't sin, but he suffered when tempted. And so he can be a faithful high priest on your account, and he stands ready to pour sin-killing encouragement into you. Or perhaps you face discouragement in finding purpose in the work that God has given you in this season. Or you feel discouraged not feeling strong enough to bear up under the responsibilities that he has given to you. And in this moment, all that you do you're to be reminded that all that you do is to be done in service to the Lord, which gives eternal value to anything you do. It turns any act into an act of worship, and the Lord Jesus will bless your faithfulness. Wherever discouragement comes, there we will find Christ with encouragement. When we lift our eyes with faith and we see him, the Lord of glory, standing by our side with strengthening grace. Remember Paul saying, I believe it's 2 Timothy, he said, at my first defense, no one stood by me. The Lord stood by me. 
He strengthened me. If there's any encouragement in Christ, there's so much encouragement in Christ. Paul reminds them of this, and then he draws their attention to, to the comfort of God's fatherly love towards them, saying again in understated, provoking fashion, if there is any comfort from love, And we know here that he's speaking of God's love because he uses the word agape, which is specifically in the Greek speaking of God's love, the texture of God's love. God's kindness towards us is not flat or one size fits all. Rather, it's it's nuanced. It's rich and varied, and it meets us in our place of need. So there's encouragement in Christ, and there's, there's comfort through agape, which goes to a different part of our hearts. For instance, one wonders how that would have landed on Lydia, who was one of the founding members of the church in Philippi. But Lydia apparently didn't have a husband or a father because it says explicitly in Acts 16 that she was the head of her household. And one wonders, as this was being read, because the Philippians would have received this letter and then read it out loud, there is encouragement in Christ, but there is comfort through God's agape fatherly love towards you, that yes, she has a covering. She has the ultimate covering, not only through the men in her church, but through the agape love of the Father. And Paul wants her, and he wants them, and he wants us to think on the Father heart of God. God the Father wants his son's bride to be comforted. That's a wonderful thought. And consider Zephaniah's prophetic words to the people of God in verse 317 of Zephaniah. It speaks of God quieting his people with his love and singing over them. When you think of your heavenly father, is he ever singing with delight over us? Does that ever come into your mind? It should. It should. Now, of course, his love is not simple sentiment or vague niceness, but it is true and it is glorious and it is burning love for his beloved people that can never be extinguished. And this is a great comfort. J.A. Packer, in his wonderful book, Knowing God, makes this point with brilliant clarity. He writes, There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. And there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love towards me, it's utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst thing about me so that no new discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself or quench his determination to bless me. Praise be to God. Yes, there is comfort in agape for the Philippians and for us. Okay, so remember, remember what he's doing. Paul's priming the pump here to continue appealing to them to pursue fellowship together. So he's having them look vertical before they return to the horizontal. And he now completes this portrait of God's triune kindness towards them. He wants them to to gaze at the nuanced kindness of God in the Godhead. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from agape, and any participation 
in the Spirit. That's a remarkable statement. There are certain glorious realities that because they are unseen, though we participate in them, we rarely reflect on. One which I often reference is the fact that in this present moment, we are being flung around a massive ball of fire one one million times the size of the earth at 67,000 miles per hour. That's our setting, right? That is happening right now. The sun is just slinging us around, a ball of fire at 67,000 miles per hour. That's amazing. I should be amazed every morning. I rarely am until NASA reminds me, and I'm glad when NASA does. That's an amazing reality that I often get uh, reminded of, but it's so tremendous when I can see it. And, and Paul here wants them to, to see this, that the church participates in the Spirit together. That is, because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, we are in a mysterious but very real way participating in the life of God together. We are participating in the work of God in this city together. We do this together as the church. Our fellowship together is based on something so much more profound than preferences or hobbies or sports teams. We participate together in the life of the Trinity through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And how often do we walk in the church just stunned that we together are participating in what the Spirit is doing? You encounter another Christian and you're just stunned that they have enough redemptive power in their person through the Spirit to redeem the entire cosmos. Every Christian you meet, that is true of them. That is true of them. I probably don't think on that enough. And that's the reason verses like Philippians 2.1 exists, because the Philippians didn't think on that enough. But the Holy Spirit wants us to think on it. God means for us to see it, to look past the seen into the unseen realities, and not just to remember it intellectually, but to marvel at the glory of what unifies us together. Together, we participate in the spirits. And Ephesians 2.22 puts it succinctly. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirits. That's incredible. They've experienced the encouragement of Christ and the fatherly love of God and all of this mediated through the participation in the spirits. And here, in a subtle way, and I had never seen this before studying for this sermon. This was such a grace to see. In a subtle way, Paul is putting before them the Trinity as the ultimate picture for the church of oneness through plurality. One God in different essential persons. One church with different but essential members. And even as he has just called them to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, they have now turned and seen how the triune God, as it were, is striving side by side for the sake of their unity. So he's appealing to their hearts before he appeals to their hands. First, 
by putting before them God's triune kindness towards his church. And secondly, and in conclusion, he appeals to their heart by telling them their unity will complete his joy. He appeals to their hearts by telling them their unity will complete his joy. Look with me again at the beginning of Philippians 2. He says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from agape, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. So he just has to get it in there one more time. So here again, Paul piles on repetition to convey his desires, but he then takes it one more step. Speaking to the Philippians' collective heart, he says, as their beloved founding pastor, that if this were to happen, it would complete his joy. Their unity would be the the finishing touches on, on his happiness. So why would he say that? How would that complete? That's a huge statement. That will complete my joy. I can die happy. Why does Paul say that? Well, I think this gets at it. It would complete Paul's joy because the more the local church is unified in love, grounded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more Jesus Christ is glorified. And the more Jesus Christ is put on display for the world to see, the world that he came to save. The more the church is unified, the more Christ is glorified in our city. See, Paul's chief desire in life was that Christ would be glorified and that the Gentiles, along with the Jews, would be converted. So, if the Philippians are united... That means Christ is glorified in a Roman province that would then start the kingdom questing out into Rome. And look at your history, right? And I get this directly from the lips of Christ in John 17. We don't want to just have pastoral opinions. We want the word of God. And this is amazing what what Christ says in John 17. Catch this. John 17, beginning in verse 22. This is Christ praying to the Father for his church on the eve of the cross. This is called the high priestly prayer. Just two verses here. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And then here it is. For a purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So our unity matters. You think we can get over petty disagreements when we have that vision of what Christ is doing in our midst? You think we can be long-suffering? You think we can let love cover a multitude of sins when we catch a vision for what Christ is working through our unity. Brothers and sisters, let's catch this vision. Make no mistake. The triune kindness of God towards us and the encouragement of Christ and the love of the Father and the participation of the Spirit, it was never meant to terminate on just us 
We're not a cul-de-sac that stores up God's love, where we get it and it just stays between me and Jesus and my morning coffee. Rather, the church is a conduit of God's love in Christ, where we receive it and it changes us and then it flows out through us and it is redemptive in our world. It creates churches which are castles of the kingdom, and it multiplies and it grows where it then becomes unavoidable to our city. Jesus again, do that, Father, that the world may know that you sent me and love them. So friends, our unity at Pilgrim Hill is so much more profound than we could even imagine. We are the living evidence that the gospel is true in our city. Let's marvel. Let's marvel at that today. That God intends to showcase the glory of Christ through our unity. And let this compel us to move towards each other, motivated by genuine love and loyalty to Christ. Let's do this for God's glory and for our joy and as a faithful witness to the world that the gospel is true. May it be. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we confess that we cannot truly take hold of these wonderful things unless you would engrave in them in our hearts. So we ask, Holy Spirit, do so now. Let us be deeply moved by the love and kindness that each person of the Godhead continuously shows us, continuously gives us comfort and kindness and encouragement over and over again. And Father, let this transform our hearts where then we are are compelled to move towards each other in love, true love for each other, marveling that the Spirit of God is in my brother and sister. In Christ's name we pray.